just kind of, kind of navigating it along for us before we get into the technical aspects, which is all what this afternoon is, and, and I'll explain all the tabs as we go through the afternoon. But, you know, it's fascinating, isn't it? It was only, what, a few weeks ago, uh, April 15th, um, Adrienne and her husband, Adam, Air Force captain, just returned from the war in Afghanistan. We have a lot of military in our church in New Break. Uh, my main campus is walking distance from the second largest off-base military housing installation in the contiguous U.S. So we have an enormous military component in my campus in particular, but in San Diego County and all of our campuses, it's just a big part of who we are. But her husband had just come back two weeks before, and they were walking along in the, uh, in the marathon just following things close to the end of that marathon. She's a dancer, a professional dancer, and, and uh, he, an Air Force pilot, when one of those IEDs blew up. And uh, I don't know if you followed her particular story. I found it fascinating just because of how she handled it and navigated it. And it not, not entirely blew off her left foot, but totally mutilated her left foot and her uh, ankle and her calf in such a fashion that they had to amputate it. And just a... Just a tragedy, really. In fact, Adam apparently saved her life. He applied a tourniquet to her leg. She would have bled out. Um, So just an incredible story of tragedy in the midst of a whole cacophony of tragedies. I mean, that whole thing was just one tragedy after another as it unfolded. I I could hardly believe it. I'm like, what? One of my campus pastors, um, he's a natural runner, and he he only has run one marathon in his life, but and he's more physically gifted than is fair. You know, you know those kind of people? Like, he's way more... It's not fair that he's that physically gifted. <laughs> he's also stunningly handsome. When I first met Steve and Karen, I, I was like 15 years ago, 16 years ago, and when I first met them, I, I thought, are you guys models or... or, or? Anyway, but uh, he, he uh, ran one marathon in his life and qualified to run the Boston, so that's how much of a runner he is. But, but what a tragic day that was. But I find it somewhat uh, of a metaphor or an analogy of how it is in the ministry for us. It is often the case that we have bombs blow up around us. Um, You know, you can think of on the personal nature, we're on the heels of Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, by the way, to you moms that are here. You guys are all moms. Any grandmas? No? I have six grandkids. Ten? (laughs) How old's the oldest? Ken, my oldest is a sophomore in college. Have you beat? I started very young. I did not. What? Is this your wife? Oh, that's cool. Hi. What's your name? Nell. 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 Uh huh. I know. I know. I was, I was like. You spell that? <laughs> N-E-Y-E-L? Or <laughs> anyway, we, we, you know, but on a personal level, because um, I, I just, there's a lot of personal IEDs that go off in the ministry. Uh, things that come to you that you never thought of. Dreams you have for your kids that blow up in your face. We've been there, done that, bought the video, <laughs> sold the video. <laughs> my, uh, my oldest son, Michael, I have a daughter uh, who's 40. My oldest boy is 33. Um, once upon a lifetime, he came to me when he was a young man. He was 18 at the time, I believe it was. 
and announced that he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant, a girl I had not met. Um, and they ended up getting married. A huge um, experience for us as a family system. I could never have anticipated it. I was sh- shocked in so many ways. At the time, this would have been, what, uh, 15 years ago. At that time, we were a ch- you know, smaller church, under 200 certainly at that point in time. And uh, difficult waters to navigate in a smaller church context, let alone a larger church context. Uh, when your uh, son uh, basically knocks up his girlfriend that you don't even know. And that was very complex for us. And we certainly didn't anticipate it. He just started in college, and I I'd, I'd just we'd literally never met the girl. Um, they ended up getting married. It ultimately ended in a horrible divorce. So there's all kinds of personal things that come to us along the way that that dishevel us. And then there's the professional realities of us where we were trying to grow in our own church context and in, in our context our, ourselves as leaders of churches. We're trying to influence others to help them to grow in their church context. But that's enormously challenging. And, and you know, pastors who possibly need to ultimately be replaced and how you navigate those waters, how do you do that well and, and intentionally, how do, you, how do you nurture and develop systems that nurture pastors around you that are under your care, because that's our charge as leaders of pastors of churches, is to qualitatively shift them up um, and deal with all the dynamics of that, which is an enormous challenge. I've been dealing with that for a long, long time. And and then, you know, like, just in our lives, you know, you have the personal and the professional and how they often conflict. Uh, my wife and I have been married for, we'll celebrate our 37th uh, anniversary this coming uh, June uh, 12th. And how those things, you know, kind of weave themselves together. Teresa's had a couple of different careers along our life's journey, but, but uh, for the past many, many years, she's been... Uh, she was our life groups director. When we were under 200, we decided to hire Teresa to be our director of life groups because we, we call small groups in New Break, we call them life groups. So when I use that term, I'm talking about small groups. And, but when, when we hired her, we had to make a decision. She had, she had uh, helped launch a very famous charter school, now a charter school system, arguably the most famous charter school system in the, in the United States. It's called High Tech High and High Tech System of Schools. But she helped start that whole thing. But we realized that we needed to continue to break the large churches down into smaller learning communities, which is what she was doing in charter school systems. So we hired her to be our life groups director, which she was for many, many years, probably 12 years, I would say, something like that, and grew that, that seven life groups into about 170, I would say, by the time... Uh, she then became our COO, our, our chief operations officer, and, and really led all of our ministry paradigms. And, and the complexities of that, I, I, I look back on it and I think, what was I doing? <laughs> you know, to be running that fast, that hard, you know. Um, and then uh, now two years ago, we uh, basically fired her. No, no, we just moved her into an, another category because we now are in the process of launching a system of charter schools. Uh, which she's the one who's doing that. But just all of the dynamics of that. I, I have on your outlines there, how do I uh, move through rather than be destroyed by the IEDs of ministry? You know, How do we navigate those waters? How do we do that kind of stuff? When I first went uh, to Newbreak, what, what we call Newbreak today, 
Uh, then it was called La Jolla Assembly of God. But when I first went to it, it was a, it was a group of 13 people in a little dilapidated church, uh, one breath from, uh, you know, ending. Uh, it was just, a, 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 you know, 13 people. And, and I was leaving a ministry that I'd been at from really 1976 to 1986. Uh, I went on staff in that church when I graduated from my undergrad in 1980. And the church grew from about 30 people to about 315 people during that time in a beach community in San Diego County. And in that era, that was a very amazing thing of God, like, to grow from that to that. It was crazy. But I I really felt called to leave that church context and go to this little church of 13, which was pretty much career suicide. Um, You know, all my friends told me, you're crazy. (laughs) And and so we went to this little church of 13, and and we were there and growing and growing and growing, you know, one and one and one and one. And, you know, we just had a great time. Uh, For several years, it grew all the way to where we were averaging about 120 people on a weekend. And, it, and it, uh, we actually had outgrown this little facility that we were in, and we had to rent another middle school uh, in, in this community to meet in, and we had our kids at the other campus. So we kind of became a multi-site even back then. And it was going along really marvelously. And in this time, this is when the vineyard movement was on the rise. Uh, John and I were acquaintances just because of proximity, and his really good friend Don and I were friends, Don Williams. And, and so through that experience, I got involved in the vineyard movement, and, and uh, a lot of my people were going to the, the seminars that we, you know, what we would do, basically. And it was cool. It was great. But then if you're familiar with vineyard history, John aligned himself with the uh, kind of wacky group, I guess I would say, <laughs> the Kansas City Prophet Group, uh, that ultimately became very controlling and dominating, and, and uh, the vineyard movement took a left. In fact, I... Personally, as I studied the kind of recent church history, I sort of see that as a sort of apex of the vineyard movement. Uh, I, I believe there's still life there, but it has to be revisited uh, in, in a significant fashion. But at that time, everything got sort of weird. And I had a lot of my people going to those seminars. And all of a sudden, they were doing kind of really pretty wild things from the platform. I then began to try and bring order and, you know, biblical <laughs> order, <laughs> even, you know, like First Corinthian type of order. <laughs> but because of the context and the sort of, uh, you know, psycho-spirituality of the Vineyard Movement at the time and the influence that it had on, on my people, I, I really became called unspiritual and, and less spiritual than they for trying to bring order. Classic Gnostic era, right? This is right out of the book of First Corinthians. But having said that, it, it, it really ultimately led to a church split. Uh, so in 1992, we went from about 120 people renting the middle school, growing like crazy, this whole vision for our city kind of starting to get traction, down to about 60 people. Almost killed me. After all that work. So 1992, right? We started in 1976, 1980, you know, in terms of full-time ministry, but... That's pretty much exactly the kind of context of a passage I want to read to you guys. I'm going to read from Zechariah chapter 4. It's an amazing section of scripture where uh, Zerubbabel is having kind of, what, a bad hair day, I guess I would say. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, he's been called to go back to the Holy Land and, and lead this group of people, you know, somewhere 40 to 50,000 people there. And they've gotten involved, but because of Tetanai and the, the governor of the area and, and everything, you know, they write the letters back to the king, and, and this, this construction project gets ended. And for 16 years, this, this kind of movement is stalled or, or stymied, which is a lot of times the way it works in our lives. So God raises up this prophet, Zechariah, and this angel keeps waking him up. <laughs> Been there? <laughs> Where you keep getting woke up all, all night long by God? <laughs> Sometimes Satan. Sometimes yourself, the crazy conversation inside your own heads, my head. Gets woken up eight times in the night and has this experience with the angel who speaks to him. But he's going to use Zechariah with Zerubbabel. In chapter 4, it talks about the fifth vision, fifth experience, really. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up again, you could add, like someone awakened from sleep. And he asked me this question, what do you see? What do you see? And I answered, I see a golden lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. And also there are these two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And, and we know that he's talking about the glory of God being demonstrated through the service of the ministry of the priests and everything that's happening. And even in the construction project itself that will ensue. And, and the oil, it's always symbolic of the Spirit, right? And then the, the two olive trees, which are really uh, Joshua, the, the priest of the priestly line that's helping Zerubbabel. And then Zerubbabel. The last, the last descendant of David to actually exercise political influence, uh, obviously under occupation at this time, but just an amazing story of lineage. And Zerubbabel, of course, becomes, he's in the family line of Jesus. So an amazing kind of really proleptic sort of view of, of Jesus himself, really, who combines the priest and the king, and of course, the prophet as well. So you can almost see Zechariah, Zerubbabel, and uh, Joshua all wrapped up into Jesus, I suppose. Anyway, I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And answered, do you not know that these, what these are? No, my Lord, I replied, which is often the way it is, isn't it? <laughs> As we look at our ministry and our churches. I have no idea. In fact, in New Break, I call it riding our tricycle down the hill as fast as we can. That's really what I'm doing all the time. We're all doing that. We all have tricycles, and we're riding downhill as fast as we can. And if you've ever done that, you know how easy it is to crash, especially with those little tricycles with those little wheels. <laughs> no, my Lord, I replied. And so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And then the famous verse, right? Probably most of us have memorized it. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What are you, mighty mountains? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. And then he will bring out of the capstone, uh, bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it. God bless it. And then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. This happened 16 years ago, basically. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, but his hands will also complete it. That's, I feel like, the prophetic word to us. With 
what you're trying to do, with what we're trying to do in SoCal, what we're trying to do all over the country, and then all over the world. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And then just this last verse. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. I love that, that line, though. Who dares despise small things? So if we're going to you know, kind of work through the IEDs, because the IEDs will come in ministry. You can bet on it. You can bet on it. The enemy is always against you. He's always going to try and stop what you're trying to do. That's just a given. And then we're a part of the scenario and the problem. And then other broken people in our ministry communities are part of the problems. Pastors who go sideways, leaders, uh, you know, in terms of staff situations, in terms of churches that don't have staff but just lay leaders, they go sideways and everything becomes sort of just a constant experience, really, of IEDs. It's sort of a normal part of of our lives. We want to think that if we pray enough and are holy enough and are godly enough that we won't have any IEDs. But they're just a normal, they're just there. They're just there. And so some things from Zechariah 4 that will help us. The first thing you have on your outlines is to clarify the vision. The vision. The, the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, but his hands will also complete it. Keeping the vision really crystal clear. Now, that's somewhat evolving for us because the vision, you know, is somewhat morphing all the time in our lives. I put the quote there from Mushashi, which uh, actually I got this quote from the book Damn Few. I have a bunch of SEAL team guys in my church, so, uh, and their families and everything. We have a huge SEAL team component in San Diego County. I mean, that's a big, big deal in our military installation. Anyway, one of my SEALs gave me that book, but, you know, his thing there, the only reason a warrior is alive is to fight. And the only reason a warrior fights is to win. (laughs) Like, you have to keep your focus on what you're called to do. You are called into war. You're born into war. Everybody is. Everybody is born into a state of war. God is at war on this earth. Always. And that is the reality of our lives. But you have to keep the vision clear. Like, when, when the angel comes to Zechariah and he says, what do you see? What do you see? It's always about that. Mike, what do you see? What do you see me doing? What do you see the enemy doing? What are his tactics? What are your tactics? It's it's the burning question, really, of our lives. Like when I was originally called to then La Jolla, which is where New Break began... Like it was like I said, it was like this little church of 13 people. And, and, you know, I had to deal with that question over and over again. Like, what is it that you're actually calling us to, to kind of be? Um, and I had people in my life that were helping me kind of formalize that and see what it is. But, but it's really like as leaders, you always have to ask yourself the question, what do I as a leader see? Like, like what's your calling? I, I had to learn that I'm not called to a church I'm called to the church, and in my case, I feel very strongly that I personally am called to a, a, a specific Jerusalem, a specific Judea, a specific Samaria, and a specific uttermost. And you have to kind of constantly clarify that for you. Like for me, I, I have been in San Diego. Okay, Teresa and I have been married 37 years in June, right? So 37 years ago, we met at uh, college, basically. I was... 
uh, through the army at this point. And I uh, felt called to the ministry. I didn't know anything. I became a Christ follower as an adult. Um, I did it, grew up Christian. I grew up, I was Catholic as a boy, uh, but we quit going very early. I'm left-handed. I write left-handed. My strong arm's my right arm. But if you were left-handed when I was a boy in a Catholic school, that didn't go real well. They would smack your left hand. Educational psychology at the time thought that if you were left-handed, you'd be stupid, which I think sort of bore out a little bit in my case. <laughs> but they would, they would smack my left hand. It didn't really go well for me. I, they kicked me out, basically, of the parochial schools. Uh, my family quit going to church, and that was kind of the end of that. So I didn't grow up a Christ follower. I never met a Christian, by the way, my whole life. Not that you can't be Catholic and a Christ follower. I just never met any. None of my family were. I never met a Christian my whole life growing up. Nobody ever shared their faith with me. I never saw any church do anything for its community outside of its walls. Not one time. If you'd asked me at any point growing up, where are the churches in your city? I could have only told you where my Catholic church was. That was it. Nobody ever shared with me. I grew up all just smoking dope, going crazy all over Southern California. That's how I grew up. Never met a Christ follower. I get, uh, you know, I graduate 1971 from high school. I didn't like school. <laughs> I was going to own my own business. I was going to go into the trades. I like working with my hands, building things. Um, so I got out of the high school 71. My parents kicked me out at that point. I was homeless, actually, for three months. I uh, then kind of got my life together. I lived with a few girls along the way, one of with whom I have a daughter, Rain, who's the 40-year-old. Uh, I still never meet a Christian. I go into the Army in 1972, still don't meet a Christian. I go to Fort Ord, uh, California, never meet a Christian. Nobody ever witnesses to me. I then go to West Point, New York for a year in the engineer unit there, never meet a Christian. Nobody ever shares with me. Nobody ever invites me to church. I then go to Okinawa. I, I am there for six months or so, never meet a Christian. And then I finally meet some Christians, first time in my life who had the courage to share with me. They felt very insecure. Because I was the guy that you would look at and you would think, that dude would never be interested in church. So I'm not going to go there. Listen, if I have one prophetic word to say to you, don't ever discount the power of God. Do not marginalize people that aren't like you. Just because we look like we're not interested. I was... I was very spiritual in my mind, like I was a, you know, I would never have called myself a Christian, but I would have seen myself in that religious dream. I thought I was fine, <laughs> because nobody ever told me any different. Anyway, I quickly became a Christian, and I was Baptist, so I'm Catholic Baptist. Then, uh, I ultimately go into a, uh, hi you guys, welcome, you can just come on in and sit wherever. Uh, yeah, and you know, you can feel free to turn your chairs and feel at home. Anyway, so I, I then become a cat, so I get saved in a Baptist environment. Ultimately, I go to an independent charismatic church. First time I was ever exposed to the charismata and, you know, the whole baptism of the spirit thing and all that. Uh, it was done, and church culture was quite painful for me. Um, uh, but but I ultimately worked. I mean, I did, in fact, experience the baptism of the Spirit in an independent, charismatic environment. Then, uh, Teresa and I meet and marry. We go to San Diego. I go to a Nazarene undergraduate. My undergraduate degree is from a Nazarene university. Uh, Point Loma Nazarene University is my undergrad. I went to an AG church, Assemblies of God, uh, where I was ultimately ordained and, in fact, went on staff in that church. And then I went to an Orthodox Presbyterian seminary and a Baptist seminary. So I am a mutt. I am a complete mutt. 
But God has used that in my life to help me all the time clarify vision. At times, it's been very challenging because, like, unlike a lot of you, perhaps you grew up Assembly of God and that's, like, that's the stream in which you've always swam. That has its upsides and downsides. The upside is, is it sort of narrows, like, how you kind of approach the subject of clarifying the vision, which, which can be very helpful. And, and, you know, you don't, I don't want you to belittle that ever. That's like a, it's kind of like a gift. That's kind of like how I wanted to raise my kids, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's the great irony of my life. I have a lot of conversations that I want to have when I get to heaven. But anyway, <laughs> for me, it's been a little bit challenging because I'm a little bit eclectic, if you will. So clarifying the vision sometimes for me can be a little bit challenging. But when you see, you have, to, you have to keep clarifying because everything flows from vision, what you see. Like I want, and this afternoon is for, for sure going there, I want to challenge you so that you see the geographic area in which you are, that you're called to that geographic area. You're not just called to the church. When you go to heaven, God's not going to say, how did you pastor your church? He's going to say, how did you pastor your city? He's going to ask you how did because you guys are influencers in a larger context. He's going to ultimately it rolls up into a, a, a North Carolina uh, issue, a, you know, geographic zone, except for a little bit of South Carolina. <laughs> okay, so ultimately it evolves into that. But obviously God is doing something cross district now. Um, this is the thing that uh, died on the uh, general council floor, but it will come in varying forms, the trans-geographic districts. Uh, this is happening, uh, whether we approve of it or not. God is, in fact, doing this. Um, <laughs> and so that's why you have to clarify. Now, not everybody's called to the same thing. I'm just saying you have to clear, you know, clarify the vision constantly because it's a moving target. New break, we now have six campuses. You know, we're, we're clearly going north. We're clearly going east. We have a vision of how to plant churches everywhere um, without uh, paying any attention to geography. Um, and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, do, I am a man under submission. Uh, we have a famous uh, value statement in New Break. I never get to do what I want to do. I get to do what we want to do. So we take seriously Ephesians 5.21. I'm just saying the Lord is doing something in this, in this day that is truly, truly beyond our wildest dreams. I don't think any of us can see it yet. Even Kevin Penry and Craig Rochelle, I don't, I don't think anybody sees ultimately what God's going to do. Rick, there are a few guys that are way out ahead of the pack. Craig Rochelle, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, there are a few entities, leadership network that see in such a fashion and they'll help us see. But believe me, ladies and gentlemen, what God is doing is incredible. Second, identify your mountains. By the way, we're in tab nine. Um, yeah. <laughs> out of Zechariah 4. <laughs> Anyway, so identify my mountains. Uh, it says, what are you, mighty mountain? Before, Zer- before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone, capstone to shouts of God, bless it, God, bless it. You have to identify the mountains. The mountains in the storyline is this governor of the region that Zerubbabel is somewhat submissive to, if you will, named Tetanai. And he's the one who writes the letter back to the king. And he's ultimately the one that thwarts the construction of the temple. For 16 years, this dude's been doing this. And then the other mountain, really, I think, contextually in the passage is just the apathy. You know, sheep, when you don't keep vision in front of them and keep 
you know, recruiting them, equipping and releasing them. That's our kind of thing. In New Break World, we say your sole responsibility is to recruit, equip, and release. Recruit, equip, and release. That's what you do. It's in Ephesians 4, Ecclesiology. That's what you do. If you can't do that, I've hired you wrong. I will fire you. Uh, I, I will try and coach you up. But if I, if, if I blew that in the interview, that's on me. But then I am responsible for the decision thereon. So I must either coach you into it or let you go, you know, move you out. But at the end of the day, it's about recruiting, equipping, and releasing. But sheep left to themselves. Remember, you guys, you guys got to remember about me. This will happen all day long. Remember, I grew up Catholic. It's both my strength and my weak spot. But I believe that most Protestants act far more like Catholics than they're willing to admit or they can understand. And I believe I have found it true across the United States that most Protestant pastors, quite frankly, function very much on an ecclesiological level, much like Catholics. Not with all the sacerdotalism and all the whatever, sacraments and stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about functionality. I'm talking about recruiting, equipping, and releasing. That, at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, is what we do, whether we are overseeing churches or whether we're overseeing a church. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. And that's the challenge with them. That was their mountains for 16 years. The people had become spiritually apathetic because no one was able to lead. No one was able to keep the vision in front of them and keep them, you know, mobilized toward the vision. And that was my case, you know, for many, many years. I mean, I, I know what it's like to have my, I still have mountains. Mountains are relative to size. I mean, my goodness. Part of me is like... You know, like, on any given day, if you ask me, I was asked this question recently. <laughs> Mike, if you, if you had it to do over again, would you have gone multi-site or would you just build a big box? And I, honestly, I, I struggle sometimes with that reality because <laughs> multi-sites are complicated. Um, church planting is complicated, <laughs> but super fun. And I believe we're called to it, all right? <laughs> Therefore, I do it. But I didn't have the power of, like, Saddleback, you know. In this period of time, you know, Rick Warren and Saddleback was blowing up. Bill Hybels, Bill Hybels went to the same seminary as me. So Bill uh, came to Bethel a couple of times and spoke, you know, and I met him. And, you know, but, like, it was hard for me. The gap, you know, there was this huge gap. I didn't have the resources. Plus, I didn't know what I was doing, quite frankly. I mean, I had a lot of education, but most of my education was theological in orientation. I almost became a professor. Like, I really liked academics, so I almost went that route. But I realized I did not want to spend my whole career with a bunch of holy people. That would drive me crazy. I'm much more comfortable uh, in a pub, in a restaurant, on a beach, I surf. I'm much more comfortable, honestly, with the, the edge people, the not saved people. Um, we, for example, in Newbreak, make, mandate all of our pastors to lead a life group called 101. That life group is the life group through which all people that come to Newbreak go through before they get into the other life groups. And in that life group, Often it is common that like a third of them aren't saved yet. It's invaluable to pastors. Pastors, generally speaking, don't have non-saved friends. If, you're, if you are typical, you don't have non-saved friends. You don't even know their language anymore. You don't know how to talk to them. You don't know their dialect. And that it disempowers you. This is why your vision is super, super important to you. Anyway. <laughs> 
I can go out and on on that one. I have different uh, kind of examples of what your mountains might be, like fossilization of methods. We'll talk about all, that all afternoon. Uh, not knowing what made you great in the first place, that's a big one, I think, for me. Like, I'm constantly struggling with the story. What exactly did you do when we broke the 200 barrier? What did you do when we broke the 600 barrier? What did you do when we broke the 1,000 barrier? What was, what was going wrong? You know, and remembering the story, because that's key to your future. Um, you know, what's the definition of insanity? You know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting for different results, right? Which I'm insane on any given day, so. Um, fears that you have. You know, Zerubbabel and, and uh, Joshua and Zechariah even, no doubt, have fears and stuff. And the, the big fear that you have, you know, uh, what is it? John Eldridge has made this one famous. I don't have what it takes, you know, all his wild at heart stuff. That's all about that question. I don't have what it takes, which, seriously... We don't <laughs> in and of ourselves. Oh, and then I put pastors holding facilities hostage because we have a lot of that in Southern California. I don't know if you have it here, but I call it the law of last man standing. Some guy gets elected into a church. It's 30 people. It's been 30 people for 10 years. And, you know, he's holding it hostage. He doesn't know and not even interested necessarily in growing it and developing methodologies that will grow it. But he's holding it hostage. He got elected in. It was a sovereign church. Do you have sovereign churches here and, and DA, uh, DA churches? Is that what you should call them? Okay. We're, we've gone to the word network as opposed to district. So we call them network affiliated now and sovereign churches. But... Anyway, I, I, that's just, uh, you know, we can maybe talk about that this afternoon. But. Well, then, then the third thing is listen to my Zechariahs. Listen to my Zechariahs. Yeah, it shouldn't be apostrophe. I, it's on mine, too. It's my fault, Trevor. Trevor, you're awesome, by the way. You're doing a good job. Give Trevor a hand. He's back there doing our tech. I, we, we have clickers in Newbreak, so I, I do it myself normally. But you're doing awesome. Um, so listen to my Zechariahs. You know, God raises up Zechariahs for us. Uh, and, and that's why I put who are yours. And I'd encourage you to write them down. Like in your church, who are your Zechariahs? The, the leaders that come alongside of you and speak into you when you don't have enough faith. You don't, you're just getting all sideways. You're getting all messed up. You know, who are your Zechariahs? Uh, I put empirical creativity. I'm reading this book uh, by Jim Collins right now on, uh, what's it called? Great by Choice, uh, Jim Collins. A great book, by the way. I would encourage you to read it. I just heard him at Catalyst uh, West. We have this conference called Catalyst West. But uh, he calls it empirical creativity. And, and this is where you're creative but around empirical data points. And you work hard at, at crafting your skills. Like back in the day, they used to have these things called Break the 200 Barrier Seminars. And we were trying to break. That's the single greatest numeric barrier to break. And we had gone to, I think, five of them trying to break that stinking barrier, man. And, you know, like I was just working super, super hard at it uh, for a long, long time. And this is very important for you to understand about me. People think, oh, and they don't know the story. Okay, so like, like we were under 200 from 1986 until 2000 thousand-ish. So for 14 years doing empirical creativity, finding my Zechariahs. I could name tons of them in my life. Um, Ray Rachel is my superintendent. He's not anymore. Rich is now my superintendent. But Ray and Rich and I, for that matter. But Ray and I are super good friends. Ray was a significant mentor to me. A man named Dave Gable, who was the assistant superintendent. I was his helper in the decade of the harvest decade. 
And, uh, you know, I was just constantly trying to learn, learn, learn. I was in, uh, I was in seminary a, long, a lot during these times, but uh, ultimately in a doctoral program, I quit the doctoral program because it really wasn't working for me, but constantly trying to find Zechariah's who could come alongside of me and speak into me. My latest version of it is an incredible entity out of Dallas called Leadership Network. Um, and now I'm very involved in Leadership Network. I'm in two different leadership communities at Leadership Network. I'm in one called the Rapid Growth something, something. <laughs> and then I'm in this other one called Lead Pastors 2. And they're both super cool and different from each other. But trying to develop best practices. Um, this one is all these guys are rapid growers. Like there's this guy named Peter Haas in my group. He, he's a church planter. And these are not AG circles. These are just whatever circles. Um, Peter is, I think, with ARC. Uh, it's a whole movement that we as a movement are aligning ourselves with, by the way. Um, uh, ARC. And, but but uh, Peter, he's a freak. He plants a church in uh, Minneapolis, I believe it is. And in, I, I think it's six years, the thing is 4,000 people. That is just crazy. And he's just an organizational spaz, I guess I would say. Like, like it's so fun to have him in the group because he doesn't have hardly any best practices except it's growing like a weed. <laughs> and so we have kind of a lot of systems because I'm old and I've developed systems. <laughs> so we help each other. And, and then this lead pastor's one, I'm in that. But you got to get in environments where you're, you pull Zechariah's into your life. And then the next thing is relying on God's spirit. Ultimately, it comes down to the Spirit of God who's at work in us and through us to do what he's called us to do. You guys have made this commitment to plant churches. At the end of the day, it is going to be the Holy Spirit who's going to work through you to do this. That great famous verse, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. In Collins' book, um, uh, the, the Courage book, Courageous by Choice, I think it is, or Great by Choice, um, he has this discipline of his what he calls 10x leaders. The 10x leaders are leaders who grow at 10 times the field during the same period of time. And he's got these three things about them. The first one is that empirical uh, creativity. But then he has this sort of fanatical discipline. And, and it just takes that for you to become great. You must be disciplined. The spiritual disciplines are super, super key to us as leaders. You must commit to, you know, fasting on a regular basis. You must commit to a daily life with God, a devotional life. Your devotional life must be contagious. The people around you must want your devotional life. They must want to ask, and, and you can tell because they'll ask you about it. How do you do your devotions, Pastor Mike? Like, how does that work for you? And you need to teach about this all the time from your platform. Because trust me on this, if Bill Hybel's reveal study has shown us anything, that is the rank and file in your chairs, in your pews, whatever you have. They don't have a meaningful devotional life. Their devotional life is horrible. And they need you to teach them. Just because they've been walking with Jesus for 10, 15 years doesn't mean they have a good devotional life. They don't have a clue about how to fast. You have to dummy it down, too. You've got to make it simple. Give them handouts. You know, give them ideas of ways to fast. They don't know how to fast. <laughs> and if they fast, they often do it, like, not spiritually. Like, they fast. Okay, I'm going to make a commitment not to drink coffee or eat meat for Lent. But then they don't ramp up their prayer life. They just stop drinking coffee and eating meat. Like, they secularize the very fast. I mean, but again... I would argue, where do they catch it from? Let's see, that would be 
us. You know, that would be us. We do all kinds of things like this. Once upon a time, I did a 40-day fast. Uh, before we broke the 200 barrier, I did a 40-day fast. I really felt called to it. I met this guy who was doing a 40-day fast for skinny, and I was wondering, like, what's going on with you? And so I asked him, you know, he's a little uncomfortable talking with me about it. And so he did a, he was on a 40-day fast. And so then I felt led to do it. So I did a bunch of research on how you would do it because that's a very dangerous physical thing to do. So I asked some doctors and people about it. And, and, then, and then I was going to start it. And then I felt convicted by the Lord. And I felt like I should call my church to do it. And so I, I didn't do it gnarly like that. I just called them to a fast for 40 days of fasting something. I told them what I was going to do. Well, I had like probably 20 people fast pretty much all solid food for uh, 40 days. Varying kinds of juices and stuff that, you know, and we all kind of hive together and like learn best practices about it and, and shared ideas and shared experiences. It was a very, very virile time in our uh, church life. Listen to me. All afternoon we're going to talk about methods. At the end of the day, it's that verse. At the end of the day. And if it's not, when you plant those 20 churches or whatever it is, if it's not, at the end of that time, God will use you in spite of your stubbornness. You know that, right? So at the end of that time, you could have planted those 20 churches, and you're going to go, aren't we great? And you will be, but it'll be an inappropriate appreciation of your greatness. You've got to keep it simple on that. You've got to rely on the Spirit of God. And then the fifth thing there, just quickly, is don't despise small beginnings. You know, I love that verse. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth were placed, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, like don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise it. You know, Zechariah means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. Don't despise small things. Just because a church is 13 people, don't despise it. It has great, great potential. Great potential. Now, I put that quote by Jim, Jim Collins there. The r- way real creativity happens is by firing bullets and then firing cannibal, cannonballs. Get moving inexpensively, learn, master, and then put your firepower to use with cannonballs. It's about learning how to scale innovation. It's the blend of creativity and discipline. But don't despise small uh, beginnings. Uh, I'm reading a kind of preview, I guess you would call it, of a book by Larry Osborne. He's a pretty significant mentor figure in my uh, area. Uh, and he, uh, he writes this book. I forgot what the name of it's going to be. It's not a book yet, but uh, he's, it's, uh, he, he says, call things experiments. We're trying this. <laughs> Here's what we're trying. People will let you try stuff all the time. As opposed to, you know, this is what we're doing. <laughs> you know, be careful of that. <laughs> you know, and, and don't despise the small things. Don't despise the power of the small churches and the small little campuses and whatever. And we'll talk about that this afternoon as well. You know, I, I uh, have this uh, quote from Adrian Hassel, uh, Haslett Davis. Um, I absolutely want to dance again. And I also want to run the marathon next year. Can you believe that? I will crawl across the finish line, literally crawl, if it means I finish it. That's how I want to go to heaven. I had a really good friend die 
uh, last week, two weeks ago. I did his memorial service Friday. I flew back into San Diego to do it. Steve, one of my, uh, he's the first board member that I ever had die. Um, we're a young church. Like, I'm old in my church. <laughs> like, I'm super old in my church. Like, I'm everybody's dad's age. Like, the average age of Newbreak is about 33, maybe, something like that. But Steve got cancer. He got colon cancer, uh, which is why all of you need to get colonoscopies, gentlemen. Your doctor will tell you you can get them when you're 50. If you can lie or <clears throat> do something to get it earlier, I would encourage you to do so. Steve never got his. I got mine when I turned 50. He never got his. He started having symptoms of stuff, you know, I don't know, stomach, stomach stuff. Goes into his doctor. Tests were done. Said, you never had your colonoscopy. You need to go get your colonoscopy. When I got my colonoscopy when I was 50, I had six polyps. All would have turned cancer, or half of them would have gotten colon cancer. When they did Steve's colon, uh, colonoscopy, he had colon cancer because he didn't get his colonoscopy. And he fought it for three years, and then he died. But he died a happy man. In this sense, he did this ever since I knew him. Now, I only knew him for about 13 or 14 years, but I knew him ever since Newbrick was a little church. He was very involved, vice president of a bank, very involved, super strategic, didn't have a degree, self-taught, became a vice president of IT, but amazing strategically. And he did this with me the whole time he was alive, gave him so much meaning. When he died, I mean, I was with him when he was dying. He was, I mean, it was a bummer, but it was great because he felt like, and we had a lot of conversations about it, he felt like he'd lived well. That's how I want us to live. Like when we're old and dying. I had cancer in my left lung a year, two years ago. I had lung surgery. I know, I know what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> I, I don't take next breath for granted, not once. And I surf. So I surf. And I get to surf. It's a gift. But I want to run hard, 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 harder. And then I want to die well. And this stuff... When we're all dying, this will give us joy. And the people we've mentored, they will gather. They'll gather around your bed. And you, your last 30 days will be the most powerful of your life. They'll be the most powerful. The people you've mentored, they'll come and see you. And you get to be like Zechariah. Because they'll be Zerubbabel. But you'll get to be like Zechariah. You'll be able to speak into them. Love them. It could be your kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. But it could also be the, the pastors you've mentored. The churches that you've planted. They'll come. And they'll see you. And it'll be awesome. So let me pray for us, all right? Lord, I thank you so much for letting me be with these folks for this day. One day in a life. It's an amazing gift. It's an amazing gift. Lord, the enemy wants to stop us at every juncture. Every single one. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything in our lives. In our families, with our own kids, parents, all the drama and the saga that is our life. 
But you, Lord, you want us to thrive. You want to bless us beyond our wildest imagination. We have no idea. You could do immeasurably more than all we could ask or even imagine. And so I pray, God, in Jesus' name, by your Spirit, that you will help us to learn from each other today and help each other today. And I pray, God, that it will unleash us a spirit of collaboration and spiritual synergism that will take place in this group that will have ripple effect into the states and regions around it and that there will be this new move. God, you're certainly doing this in this direction where, where people are collaborating more together and, and sharing rather than protecting their ideas and their best practices, Lord. And I pray for that spirit to be released in this room over the course of this day. And then over their uh, district council that's happening over the next two days, Lord, that that will become like a, like a kind of like a virus that's caught, only a good one. <laughs> it won't be like a cold, a bad one. It'll be like a good one. And that it'll just be contagious, Lord. I pray that this group will sneeze all over the other group as they come in contact with them over the next few days. And then everybody will catch this virus of collaboration, Lord, where we, we kind of give it away to everybody. We, help us to give. We cannot outgive you, God. Help us to give. Help us to be generous. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. It's going to be great being with you today. I don't know.